talks about his own race in this piece. But recently, the interesting thing is he's sort of come under fire from the, the Me Too uh, movement because he's also uh, has become is shown to be have been a perpetrator of uh, trauma as well. And this is the video that I mentioned, what I'm mentioning now, that just sort of gives a little bit of a snapshot of the historical perspective on trauma. And it's, it comes from this series called At Home in the, in the Dark. It's, you can watch it on YouTube for free. It's by this documentary filmmaker named Charles Shaw. picture with more of the uh, climate change and whatnot. But uh, just to give a simplistic uh, definition, overview of trauma, that it originally comes from the word, uh, the Greek word that means wound. And uh, the second one, I, I think this is very uh, important, that it's not necessarily the event itself, it's a person's interpretation of the event. And this is something I remember Dr. Hibble and I were speaking really, I think, emphasized that, and this is one of the things that they talk about in the literature, that all these events are potentially traumatic events. And for the most part, it's uh, sort of widely accepted that things like sexual abuse, child abuse, uh, in our culture are traumatizing, but, but everybody reacts to it differently depending on their support system and their own uh, individual makeup. And then the third one comes from Peter Levine, that, who's a uh, trauma specialist, uh, psychologist, and, and it really uh, emphasizes that often that trauma leaves a lasting impression in the nervous system long after the event happened. And this sort of gives an overview of the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experience Study. And this is one of the things that really inspired my uh, research. So I, I first heard about this about six, seven years ago, and it just really, the framework was really compelling to me of sort of grand narrative, this grand explanation for why people develop mental health issues, but even beyond mental health issues, I think it's even more compelling is that there's all these connections between these events as a child uh, and and uh, adult health, even things such as uh, cancer, heart disease, obesity. And going back here, these are the these are the key events that they really are screening for: and emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, living with somebody that has a substance use problem, and all these these questions are screened for if they happen before the age of 18, because as we know that the uh, the brain is more susceptible to stress uh, the earlier it happens. And these are some uh, examples from, from the ACE questionnaire. And they just asked if somebody experienced these events, yes or no. And they uh, add up the events, and that becomes the ACE score. But one of the key things that I, I've come to realize is that it's very unlikely that somebody just has one of these events, that it's often 
it can be understood in this idea of poly-victimization that they have, there are multiple adverse experiences. And from, from a systems perspective, it really represents that there's a breakdown in the family system, generally even if one of these is happening, that's why it's rarely one event. And there are many different effects that have been shown from this type of adversity, but one of the key ones I really highlighted is this increased threat detection response. And the way they, they conceptualize this from this researcher named Martin Teicher is that when lifespan was shorter, these, these responses and the more the hunter-gatherer stage were more appropriate, but in a, if you're living in a, a, a safe world, these, these responses may not uh, be so helpful. And one of the big findings recently is this idea of uh, that traumatic effects can be transmitted across generations, and this was shown through doing analyzing second and third generation Holocaust survivors, and they showed changes in their cortisol, and this was done by this psychologist named Rachel Yehuda, and uh, what she showed, which I think is interesting, is that the biomarker for PTSD is actually not high cortisol, but low cortisol. But however, it still remains in the range of normal, so it doesn't, it doesn't reach the threshold, which would be considered like a, an endocrine disorder, and that's to me, evidence why a lot of these changes are adaptive in the, in the con in context dependent rather than diseases. And one of the central findings, and there's many other, there's that original ACE study, but there's many other studies that sort of were grown out of that. But many of them show what they call this dose response relationship between adverse childhood experiences, and this is one example of suicide that they show with other things. as the number of the so-called ACEs go up, the likelihood that they attempt suicide goes up. And I, I share these uh, images just to try to situate this issue of trauma in a local context, but these events have gone beyond the local because they've gotten such national attention. And the, 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 one, the first one is Nakia Vivant, and she was in the foster care system in, in Miami, and she ended up taking her own life and videotaped it on Facebook Live. And, but I, I don't know specifically how many of these adversities she has, but I, I, would, I would guess that she has at least more than four to maybe beyond six. And Nick Cruz, as well, he was also in the foster, he was adopted, and, but he, rather than taking his experience internally, he expressed it out, outwardly. And uh, I think trauma can provide a, an explanation, a possible explanation for these responses. It's not the only one, and so it doesn't, I don't think their behavior was justified, but I, I think there are many factors that go on, that went on in both these cases, but if you read the reporting of it, I don't think trauma was highlighted enough and emphasized enough. So like many other narratives, you have a dominant narrative and then you have sort of a counter-narrative. And one of the counter-narratives to, to trauma is resilience. And from a systems perspective, I would say that resilience represents a first-order change, that the system or person is stretched but they sort of go back to their original state before the stressor or trauma occurred. And here's another uh, definition from about a definition on resilience from uh, Anne Maston, who's one of the sort of foremost resilience scholars. And it's just about a, a system or an individual's capacity to, uh, to bounce back, essentially. But uh, Anne Maston also talks about this concept of ordinary magic to highlight that resilience is not, is not the, really the exception, that most people are resilient, that our bodies, our brains are the signs that withstand, withstand stress and recover. Post-traumatic growth for, for Anthony in the back, he's a uh, promoter of that. And uh, post-traumatic growth to me represents more of a second-order change, that the, the system or the individual is totally altered permanently, but that, that alteration is, they can actually grow from these changes and actually come back from the experience possibly stronger, more creative, more spiritual perhaps. And uh, I chose that image 
as I think it really represents this concept, uh, it's sort of a um, traditional Japanese ceramic design called ikigori, which is that you paint the gold where the cracks are rather than to hide them to show the sort of the beauty from the, the damage that the, the sort of the, or as maybe like Rumi would say, the, uh, the light enters in the, the bandage place. So this is also just shows us how resilience and post-traumatic growth and, and PTSD are distributed. You see that, like I said, most people are resilient, but there's, if you look at it from a, a normative statistical distribution, a certain exhibit the, that post-traumatic growth and a, a small percentage PTSD. But to counter the more normative view, we can take more of a postmodern perspective. And one of the, the definitions I like uh, about postmodernism is a, uh, is a skepticism towards these grand meta-narratives. And trauma is certainly a meta-narrative. That it, it, it can be, I think that's sort of its uh, weakness and its strength. It can be used to explain everything from poverty, racism, to child abuse, war trauma. It's, it's very uh, vast and it can be a little bit nonspecific. And the other thing about why, how this grew out of this uh, questioning meta-narrative was to uh, protect against totalitarian regimes like authoritative governments. But now, currently, we're in sort of this post-truth realm, and I think that shows how that the how people like can take any idea and then push it to using it for more totalitarian ends in, in a sense. But I sort of like this uh, third perspective is more of one. Oh, I forgot to show that. Here, here. The, the third one, that flexibility, that, that have feel a little bit more hedging in our, our theories and our assumptions about human behavior because there's so many factors going on, it's hard to uh, just say everything's about trauma. And me, myself, when, I, 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 when I've gotten excited about this trauma and I, all the clients I want to talk to, I want to explain them about trauma, then doesn't always necessarily resonate with them. It doesn't always fit. So I think you have to be careful not to impose your interests on the people you work or consult with. And this is uh, Sandra Bloom, who's a psychiatrist, who's one of the sort of preeminent figures in this trauma-informed movement. And I, I think this, this, these questions sort of represent the trauma-informed ideology moving from rather than what's wrong with some somebody looking at them from the perspective of what happened to them. And I, I had met her before at a presentation and she talked about how she herself went to a workshop in the Bahamas and met with the then the two leading trauma specialists, Judith Herman and Bessel van der Kolk, and she said she was really excited about bringing this back to her agency. And in one of the meetings, she was sort of explaining to her staff members and one of them one of her social workers said, well, I think it's really about ask, you know, asking people what happened to them rather than what's wrong with them. And that's how this, and this, this, how this kind of uh, tagline came about, and it's been sort of a mantra of this movement. But going back from that to that postmodern kind of perspective, then, um, it just because somebody's had adversity, it doesn't, it's, there's no cause and effect linear relationship to how they are as adults. And uh, I like this graphic that healing is not linear, just to uh, give it, create an image of that. And the key thing is that using, measuring something like trauma and resilience with an instrument is really is vastly different from measuring temperature with a thermometer. That uh, for the most part, you're gonna, we're gonna get the same measurements, but even something like temperature, you know, depending whether we're in the US or Europe, we use a different, still somewhat context specific, even something as objective as temperature. So I decided to use narrative therapy because, uh, well, first of all, we're um, in a family therapy program here, and of all the family therapies, I thought that narrative really uh, offers a uh, unique perspective on trauma. And it has it's influenced by this postmodern uh, theory, and really, and also, and this this quote I really think speaks to uh, how people that have experienced trauma, and this is Michael White, the one of the founders of narrative family therapy, really speaks to how people always prot protest the trauma that they experience, and by 
asking them about that, asking about their resistance to the trauma, you can help to uh, bring about change in their sense of personal agency rather than focusing on all the negative uh, effects of trauma. And this double-storied framework that comes from another uh, narrative therapist, David Denborough, really highlights, gives a little bit more of a framework how to uh, elicit somebody's uh, resistance to the trauma. And on the one hand, you have the effects of it, but on the other hand, you have the resistance and the protest. And the narrative therapists are much more interested in, in eliciting the resistance rather than the effects of the trauma. And uh, this is this is a social networking site called the ACES Connection, which is essentially like a Facebook for people that are interested in healing trauma, raising awareness of it, and building resilience. And you can see there's a little picture of me up here, and uh, this is just what it looks like. And I decided to that I was going to recruit my uh, participants from this uh, website. And uh, because I, I thought that was going to be a target-rich environment for people that have dealt with these issues. And my, my inclusion criteria was very broad. That it was just that they had to at least be 18 and younger than 65 because below 18 they would be considered a, um, a special vulnerable population and also above 65. And and my, I got a, a lot of people interested that wanted to speak to me about what happened in there from the site. And it was all in North America, and you, as you can see, there's a wide range of people from their 20 all the way to 60. And that gave me a diverse perspective. I did find that the ones in, in 20, they, just because they hadn't lived as much life, they didn't have as much to report than the older uh, folks. And the research question is also very broad, how do individuals adapt to adverse childhood experiences? And just to also add that I, I conducted the interviews on a, a secure telephone service to protect their confidentiality, and then I transcribed the interviews, and, and I did a, a grounded theory analysis using this online program called Deduce which is a web-based qualitative software. And rather than doing the, uh, what, like I was talking about before, the more statistical modeling, I tried to come up with a theory based on person's uh, experience from the bottom up rather than the top-down process, so going upstream. And these are some of my uh, interview questions that are influenced by that double-story perspective. And like the first one, is there someone or something that sustained you through these challenging times? If so, you tell me about this. So that it leaves a little bit of room for the trauma, but it, but it tries to emphasize more the, the, the resilience factors. I organized my themes that, that, that were generated from the analysis as uh, uh, in two broader categories of trauma and resilience. And the first one, major one I called survival responses, are sort of like classical things you see a lot about in the trauma literature. And it's been talked about it, characterizing them as mammalian responses. You can see the animals exhibit some of these responses. The other one is betrayal trauma, which I'll talk about then some maladaptive responses like suicidal uh, ideations and some possible boundary problems. And here's a little uh, video from that same movie that I showed earlier that just talks about this, highlights this concept of mammalian responses.
in this diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And for the uh, mental health professionals in the room, you know how stigmatizing uh, a label that borderline personality disorder is. So you're taking somebody that's already feel, they've been traumatized, they don't feel believed, and then they're given this, what Michael White, I think, would call a totalizing description uh, they're just saying that their whole identity is, rather than uh, some other diagnosis, which is just say a part of you is disordered. This is basically saying your whole personality is disordered. And this is a graphic from, uh, from a trauma survivor who's based in the UK who does research, uh, which she calls survivor research. And I, I got to have tea with her in, in <laughs> London. And uh, she has all other great graphics. And, and it, oh, I, I really like this because uh, here you have what is sort of this uh, dominant hegemonic narrative, that uh, oppressive narrative, and here you have the uh, maybe the, the sort of survivor, uh, the resistance narrative, that uh, maybe borderline personality disorder is a patriarchal construct designed to silence women. So that's the alternative source. And a lot of these, these types of traumatic events, I think, can be characterized as a betrayal trauma. And that is because these aren't just like natural disasters that just happen just by chance. They, they're actually more volitional acts, and they're usually done by people that, that are close to the people, or people that are that the victims feel should are there to take care of them, or institutions designed to take care of them. And even though these two people never talk to each other, as far as I know. Michael White and Jennifer Freed, who has the betrayal trauma. What, what Michael White is saying to me sounds a lot like betrayal trauma. And now we go move into more of the what I call the resilience themes, and these these themes start from uh, the individual self level and move into relationships. And the first one I called self care. And it's just a, a variety of different activities that people were sort of doing to, I would say, to promote their own individual recovery. And then it, it moved more into relationship and then to more of a meta-society level. And self-care is a term that's become very popular right now. And uh, but now it sort of exists in this capitalistic consumer culture. But the original intent of self-care is much more of a radical idea. And it comes from a black uh, lesbian feminist named Audre Lorde. And the way I interpret this quote is she was saying that she was basically living in a, a society where the whole society invalidates her existence. And really loving herself in those, in those conditions are, is an act of uh, resistance. And reading was one of the, 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 the themes that came up a lot from my participants. And this was caught me a little bit by surprise. I didn't necessarily initially associate that with recovery from trauma. And this particular quote also comes from what I would call more of a survivor research, that she has her own lived experience, and she is now a uh, psychologist in the UK. And one of the key things is this first line about the imagination. The participants really emphasized that they found imaginative books key to them. And one of the connections I make to this is that Karl Marx talked about that imagination is one of the unique things that makes us human and separates us from animals. And I think that imaginative capacity is very important. And then the, the bottom of this, that she began to dream of a world where one day I'd be safe, free, and loved. So sort of future-focused, envisioning the world she wanted to be in, I think is uh, also connects to that uh, imagination. And then here's a quote from one of my participants, Larissa, that really highlighted how imagination was very key to her. There's this other guy, another one of my participants who I uh, did an ad in here, he uh, really highlighted that he felt a lot of inspiration from this, what he called the fictional characters, this anime called Naruto, and he really talked about how these fictional characters provided him with uh, strength and resilience. And then the bottom here that Larry says, I even uh, maintain reading after discovering drugs, which I think is counter to this idea that once people use drugs, that's all that they want to do. So he talked about that even when he started using drugs, reading was still compelling to him. 
and moving on related to drugs, I, I labeled put drugs in the self-care categories. I don't think drugs are necessarily as detrimental as they appear to be. I think a lot of the effects of, of prohibition in the criminal justice system are, but uh, this self-medication hypothesis, this is an example of how a sort of academic concept, isn't even, it's still a theory, it's not even a, a agreed upon fact academically, but becomes digested into the public consciousness that people just uh, talk about, they frame their experience with a narrative. Like a lot of my participants describe their drug use as self-medication. That wasn't really their own idea. That's they're probably not even aware of where it comes from, but they, they frame their experience in that language. But, but to challenge that a little bit is you can see that, look here, that antidepressants have been shown. This is actually bought, done by a guy who's, like, who's not a, a, a resistance-based re researcher. He's very much in line with Big Pharma. Even he, his name's Charles Nemiroff, he's at University of Miami, even he shows and acknowledges that Antidepressants are not that effective for people that have a uh, childhood history of trauma. And I also really want to emphasize that they can be shown to increase suicidal thoughts and ideations. And to me, one of the, the, the mechanisms I think for this is that they can sort of lower people's ability to feel emotions and, and sort of decrease empathy. It's a side effect. It doesn't happen with everybody. But, and, and here now, MDMA is being looked upon as a potential breakthrough for trauma, and totally diametrically different from antidepressants, MDMA actually heightens people's empathy. And uh, my participants talked about using other uh, psychedelic drugs as well, like LSD and stuff, and most of them reported as a po relatively positive experience, but they, they didn't, they sort of moved on from it and, and just got on to their lives, which many people do. And, uh, but I just, I'm also sharing this to show the, the, this sort of juxtaposition that sometimes people use these illegal drugs because they feel they get more relief from them versus the, uh, the legal ones. And this guy, Ben Sessa, who's a psychiatrist in the UK, uh, he has a TED talk where he he's really hyping up MDMA as the antibiotic for psychiatry because he really thinks that it's really addresses trauma where other medications don't really address it. And just from a, just a simplistic neuroscience perspective, the, the remarkable thing what MDMA does is it decreases activity in the amygdala, which is associated with that threat response, enhances the prefrontal cortex, which is the focus, and the people can be feeling okay, but they're focused. And this you know, is very different from other psychedelic drugs like LSD where people are in another, you know, uh, planet and the people are alert, you know, they can talk about their traumas and be present but not overwhelmed by them. And then the third thing is oxytocin, which uh, is a chemical that's associated with trust. And as often trauma survivors have a hard time trusting other people, so it helps them have trust in the therapeutic process. And one participant that talked about her experience with this, that she felt that she felt that she had a lot of self-hatred after one of her side effects from the, the adversity she experienced, and she felt this taking MDMA helped her to, to have more compassion for herself. Now, this comes from an article in the, the British Journal of Psych, uh, Psychology, and I think it's very important. It shows how the, the effects of exercise are so profound they can even be thought as as a psych psychoactive drug. And you can see that it, and there's many different physiological neurochemical effects. I mean, a lot of people think that they exercise to look good, but it really probably helps your brain, maybe even more so than helps your, the rest of your body. But we can't see those effects, and we live in more of a materialistic culture. But like how I was saying that cortisol can be seen as the, uh, the resilience neurochemical, BDNF, I would say, oh, cortisol, no, is the, the trauma chemical. And I would say BDNF, you can characterize that as the resilience neurochemical. And it's, uh, it's thought to help people recover from depression, build new connections in the brain, maybe even grow new nerve cells. And 
exercise can promote this. There are also some drugs that can, but exercise can definitely increase it dramatically. And you see here, I shared this quote from one of my participants who I call Paula. And I put this in red that she, she thinks that exercising is better than being on drugs. And, and that may be true to her experience, but to me that represents this value judgment that, ex, that drugs are morally bad. And I think that comes from this, this idea that, that I, I trace back this article in the 1970s that talks about that if a drug makes you, they call it psychotropic hedonism, that a drug makes you feel good, it must be morally bad. And it sort of characterizes this idea of unearned pleasure, whereas exercise, people are working for their feel euphoria, whereas drugs, you're, you just take it and you can feel good, where there's no work involved. But I want to really highlight that I think, like drugs, exercise can have negative effects. And some of my participants, and this I think is somewhat characteristic of people who have experienced trauma, that they exercise in more of an extreme, intense way and they, it leads to injury. And when you, when you get injury because there's a, it's hypothesized that physical pain and emotional pain, pain occupy similar parts of your brain. They're slightly different, but they overlap. And that's seen as this evolutionary uh, neural alarm. And a lot of people talk about after they get injured, they get depressed. And I think in Tylenol is an example because it's been shown that Tylenol is actually We've done studies that show it helps people after breakups and helps with social pain. We know widely accepted it helps with physical pain as well. And here's an excellent clip from a movie, if you haven't seen it, called Boyhood, that really highlights the importance of what's referred in this resilience literature as this positive adult in somebody's life. Uh, and that can, be a, that can be a teacher, it can be a parent, it's, ideally it's somebody in the family, but can be somebody outside. Carrie's back on the stage. Let me just hang out. Just go down. Please. No, no, hey. That's not an excuse. You can still pack boxes. These people want to move in as soon as possible. I get it. And then it's a hard. You probably don't remember me, but I worked on your step decline years ago. Yeah. Believe it or not, you, you changed my life. And you told me that day that I was smart and that I should go to school. I took your advice, I signed up for English classes, and then a year later I went to community college, and I got my associate's degree, and I'm working on my bachelor's now at Texas State, and also one of the managers here. Great. It's good to see you. I really wanted a chance to, to thank you for that. Gracias. You really lost me. Don't worry about lunch. It's on me. At least I can do it. I should listen to it. And here's an example from one of my participants that I really think highlights this. This person who I call Jerry, she talked about one of her teachers named Mr. Williams, and she said that he said that she was half-stepping, which she meant to be that she wasn't really uh, trying that hard. And then after he sort of pulled her aside and, and believed in her, she saw that her different tra uh, trajectory in her life, that her, her grades really improved in that. It has been talked about as this sort of one caring adult. That's the big resilience factor. And psychotherapy is also something a lot of the participants talked about. And I think one of the key things that I put on this slide about it is that psychotherapy can be sort of private truth telling. And especially that if somebody's had trauma happen to them, that when they talk to a therapist, that may be the first time in their life that they feel safe and they believe that what they happened to them was real and it wasn't, wasn't right. And that really can reduce a lot of the shame that they may carry. And also, like I said earlier, the traumatic memories can be fragmented and scattered, and the psychotherapy can help to uh, create this more cohesive narrative. They can provide people with, help them uh, develop sort of coping skills to regulate their mood a little bit better, and it, it provides a context to uh, what happened often. And this guy, Larry, just emphasizes he felt very compelled, Larry over here, he felt very compelled by this trauma narrative and understanding of what happened to him based on this trauma framework. And he, he was initially disappointed that none of his therapists mentioned trauma or PTSD. 
And uh, Irene talks about how the, the therapy helped to contextualize what happened to her. And uh, you know, Kylie just sort of talks about how it was sort of a cathartic experience that she could just let everything out in therapy. And I, I show this help button because this represents a study that was done, and they, they have two different groups, a psychological study where they create some distressing artificial scenario, and they give one group a button, and one, like if they get too uncomfortable, they have a button to press, and the other group doesn't have a button. And uh, one of my participants really talked about how she said she always knew she could go to her, her therapist if she was totally um, overwhelmed. And so I characterize that as like her button. She said she never used this, this um, service, but she knew she could go there if she needed it. And uh, this comes from this researcher named Michael Unger, who has a resilience center in Nova Scotia, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And he really has this ecological model of resilience that shows that people's Resilience is very dependent on the, the availability of resources in their environment. And uh, try to get, I wanted to get another more current reference for this, but there was a guy in the 70s, Gabarino, James Gabarino, that he shows that even uh, the resources in the environment were even more uh, predictive of re resilience than socioeconomic status, which I think is very compelling. And this is one of my participants, Paula, who she was from the, uh, the Bay of Northern California. I know that area particularly has more uh, funding for social services than some other parts of the country. And she really, she emphasized the WIC program, which they have everywhere. But she, she said that uh, it was very profound. It really helped her tremendously. And, and she says that she, at the end, you see, she says she doesn't know individually what makes a difference, but this sort of social support, uh, social resources, social services was very important for her. All right, and a lot of my participants really tried to politicize their personal pain. And I think this is important about the connection of, of private problems to public problems. And like in family therapy, we often see a kid that's the classic thing is not is acting up, that he, he's sort of the, the uh, identified patient or problem, I can't think of the... Identified patient. Patient, yeah, identified patient. And uh, I think also another way to look at it, you can, you can raise it up to another level, that, that trauma survivors can uh, be, a, be a sign of uh, massive inequalities of power dynamics in our society. You know, currently we're... we're a very unequal political, uh, political economic environment. It's a massive problem. And also, it, it, but, but to do this, sometimes people, individuals, have to make their personal more universal. And one of the key findings which I found for a lot of my participants is the experience identifying around trauma. They were able to sort of bridge these in-group, out-group um, dynamics that can maybe stifle people that a lot of the participants identified as being a straight heterosexual, but they felt they, I noticed um, that they found a lot of support and solidarity with people that were LGBT, non-heterosexual. And uh, especially in the divisive identity political environment we're in now, I think looking at this and how to use this for good could be a, uh, a good thing. And many of the people are, that I talked to got involved with the helping professions. They made their they made the uh, their personal vocational. And and this other researcher, it's also a term that a lot of people use, a survivor mission. That that one of the things that some of the participants talked about, they wanted to create some meaning about what happened to them. So I think getting engaged in some broader cause helps to to make sure that what they happened to them was not for granted. And the last one is that the, the stress response, like cortisol, we often talk about that as a negative thing. And one of the things that uh, if you're being chased something, we, your body secretes cortisol and it propels us to act. And so I think taking action helps to sort of normalize that stress response. And uh, the last half of my title, the, uh, the resilience is, is resistance. I, mean, I use that to mean that they resist the traumatic symptoms, but sometimes they also have to resist certain things that are maybe taken for granted that, that she talks about here. 
Paula, how that she resisted this idea of being labeled mentally ill. And by not always following, being a little bit contrarian was, was helpful to uh, some of the people. And uh, you know, one of the positive sides, I think, for this heightened hypervigilance can be this pro-social behaviors. There's a link between people that have experienced trauma and engaging in more pro-social behaviors. But as you know, that some people do go into negative that take negative responses, like I talked about Nicholas Cruz, but one of the things I think that separates the people from going the pro-social realm versus the negative is after they've had the, uh, the trauma happen, how, what is the response? Do they, they find help that really connects with them? And sometimes that when people are violent, I think that there, it, it can also be a sign that the help they received did not connect with their experience, that they were dismissed or invalidated. And, uh, Helping helps the helper. This, this concept really grew out of studying 12-step groups. And one of the things of 12-step groups is they encourage the people to then do service and help other people that are struggling with addiction or other problems. And this, this service, I think, can be very helpful in people's trauma recovery. And one of the things is that I think it creates an identity shift from becoming a victim to a survivor to even more of an act advocate or activist. And by taking the action, it changes the identity. And it, it also can, from a neuroscience perspective, it can make people feel good and it releases dopamine and that also can help people, propel people to take uh, directed action. And I, I show the ads here, not, not about working out, but that, that's actually an acronym, acronym for this theory called altruism born out of suffering, which is sort of uh, conceptualizes how people that have experienced trauma can be uh, more altruistic and more pro-social than, than the, the, norm, the normal uh, person. And one, one example of this, how like trauma can be intergenerationally transmitted, so can resilience. So on, the, on the left you have Dr. Bronner's soaps, and Dr. Bronner is actually not a real doctor. And he grew up in, from a family of soap makers in Germany, and he left the Nazis, and he told his parents that, that if you don't leave, you're not, you're not going to make it. And then the parents, his last message from his parents, they said that you were right. And that he sort of went a little bit mad and was committed to a mental hospital, but he ended up getting out of the mental hospital and went on to sell his soaps in America. And he would give these lectures of this, his philosophy is the sort of mystical uniting philosophy, all one or all none. And he would give lectures and hand out his soaps, and he'd find that nobody would uh, really, they just wanted the soaps, they didn't really want to hear his lectures. And then he decided to write it on the bottle, so they would be forced to hear his message. And, uh, but going back to the, how the, this shows intergenerational resilience, now it's a, a very successful company. I mean, you can even find the soap in Walgreens. Over here you have um, MDMA pills, but those are more the, the ecstasy kind of uh, legal version. But now his, his company has donated $5 million to do research treating PTSD with MDMA. So I, I think that is an example of how resilience and altruism can be transmitted across the generations. And Maya Angelou, I'm sure many of you know, you know that she's also a trauma survivor, has been, was uh, raped as a child, and was initially one of the effects that she was mute for a while, and then she talks about how she just, you know, read an enormous amount of books and made sure that when she spoke that she really had something to say, and she definitely did. And I think that this, like I said, Psychotherapy is private truth-telling. This type of truth-telling is public truth-telling, sharing your story in a public forum, and that can help to uh, restore a sense of justice that uh, a lot of victims of trauma want to uh, feel. And uh, this is an example of one of my, one of my particip participants who talked about how she had a, her own personal uh, breakthrough, how she did some sort of self-disclosure when she was working in a social service agency, and that helped to have a breakthrough in her recovery process. And the, uh, the solution. This first line from David Denborough, that the problem, the person is not the problem, the problem is the problem. Many of you may know that, but the, uh, 
he added the second the second part of it that the solution is not always personal and I think that's very important especially in this um, today's climate uh, that we're, which we're going in with a lot of social uh, justice issues a lot of social unrest and this uh, radical therapist book came out of the 1970s and that really grew up in the context of the anti-war movement and the um, civil rights and the um, feminist movement and the key thing is that too often I think uh, as therapists we, we try to help people adjust to unjust political social environments so, so therapy should be about creating uh, personal and more social change rather than just uh, adjustments and Martin Luther King also had a great speech about this where he, he created this term that creative maladjustment that people, I mean you can understand people's symptoms reacting to unjust environments rather than having a disorder. And uh, just one little final ending, I think this really encapsulates resilience and trauma in a very short uh, video and Anthony in the back asked me if I I'd include any hip-hop references, and this this is one of Tupac's most famous poems. A lot of people don't know that he wrote poetry. shared more about my personal experience in the paper and I certainly did not grow up in concrete but along the way I, I, there was some concrete thrown in the mix of, from when I started till now so I wanted to uh, end with that. <laughs>